Good morning. It's great to be back at Community Bible Church. I'm always grateful to be here. My oldest daughter was very upset this morning during breakfast. She said, am I going with you? And I said, uh, no, you're going to our normal church. She says, I want to go with you. And I thought, I don't have time to move the car seat. And so I said, no, next time you can come with me. But this time you have to help Kirsten, your younger sister, get through nursery without crying. Um, and that's been our goal is uh, we've decided to get my wife and kids to go to that church regularly so that uh, the two-year-old doesn't burst into tears at the thought of going to church. She's only mollified by the promise of a bagel at the end of service. So really, church is about bagels, and occasionally they hear about this man named Jesus. And so um, let me pray for us as uh, we begin this morning. Lord, I'm grateful for the body of believers that gather here every week faithfully. Um, I'm grateful for the way that your Holy Spirit has been at work. Uh, calling us to you, calling us to one another, and then um, impelling us into mission. And so uh, we proclaim the truth in song. We desire to hear your truth for us and to us and about us um, in Scripture. And then, um, Lord, uh, allow your Holy Spirit to um, attune the ears of our heart, to hear for your voice, to shape our souls so that we commit to change um, and to obedience. And then... Um, Give us your fruit as we leave this place. I pray in Christ's name. Amen. So last week, uh, Dick helped us grapple with the fact that Jesus rose again, ministered to the disciples, and then he had these kind of ominous, bizarre words. Right? You're going to be my witnesses, and I need you to wait because power from the Holy Spirit is going to come on you, and you're going to be witnesses everywhere. Now, if you're a disciple at the time, you're thinking, wow, resurrection made you no more sensible than it did when you seem to be whatever, I would say alive, but you seem to be alive now. So before you were killed, um, you still seem as, it's a group of 120 people or so when the believers gather together. They're a minority tradition within Judaism in the middle of the capital city where the temple has been built with about 600,000 Jews gathered in that place who live there. And Jesus has this crazy notion for them that they're going to radically change everything. That they're going to, he's going to use them to proclaim his kingdom in such a way that everyone's going to know who Jesus is and be given an opportunity to respond to him. And if you think, we're 120 people who actually come from the northern provinces, right? Uh, I grew up in the Midwest. You would think of these as the people from Deep Woods, Minnesota, we would think of them as deep upstate, right? I mean, these are people who are not going to have credibility in the major cities. How is this going to happen? How can we possibly affect this kind of change that you want? How can we possibly witness for you in this way? And Jesus just says, wait. Wait for it. And so he leaves them, and he promises them, power will come, and you will be my witnesses, not just for that 600,000 people in Jerusalem, but the million-plus people who live in Judea, you add Samaria, to the very ends of the earth, you are going to be my witnesses. And I know, I suspect, if I were a disciple, I'd be thinking, you're only credible because you're zooming up into heaven right now. Because there's no other way we could possibly do this. So the disciples do what the disciples always do, what the church has always done and continues to do when faced with an impossible task from God and the limited resources we've been given in beginning in uh, verse 1 of chapter 2. On the day of Pentecost, they were all together in one place. <clears throat> Their gathering 
People suggest perhaps in the very upper room that Jesus held the Last Supper to pray and to worship, right? Because what else are you going to do when Jesus gives you crazy assignments like that and no obvious resources? And they were all together in one place, and suddenly, it says, a sound like a blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. And what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each one of them, and all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. When does the Holy Spirit come with that kind of power? <clears throat> I want to suggest witness always begins in worship and prayer, and that's when the Holy Spirit comes, right? When we're seeking him, when we're listening for him, and when in prayer and worship we really say, Lord, I'm yours. <clears throat> what strikes me about the Holy Spirit is he begins to impel the church out into witness, is what you saw in this passage. If you plan for witness just to emerge merely out of strategy or effort or good faith attempts, it's always going to fail. But somehow it's in the context of waiting for God to act, praying to God to act, and trusting in God that he will act, that the Holy Spirit seems to come with power just as Jesus promised. It's being open to receive what God has for them as a community when all of a sudden every person in the room experiences what only the prophets used to experience in the Old Testament. Right? That was the defining characteristic of a prophet in the Old Testament. It would say, the Holy Spirit came upon them, or the word of the Lord came upon them, and then they spoke. And they were unique individuals given to Israel, sometimes singly, sometimes in small communities. But what was distinct about them is they had the Holy Spirit in a unique way that nobody else did. But for this gathering of believers, everything that the Old Testament prophets had about the presence and the person of God in them is given to every single person in that room. And it's kind of amazing, I think, because the, the disciples have been gathering on this Pentecost day, which was 50 days um, after Passover. It was a harvest festival. And you were remembering God's provision and the abundance that he was promising you from the first fruits of this harvest. And then he gives you the Holy Spirit and just overflows that room, right? It's like, a, it's a perfect analogy. Just as you celebrate the first fruits of the harvest, knowing that much more is going to come, I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit now. And you're going to see amazing things. I'm convinced the Holy Spirit comes in that moment, not just because they're in prayer and then they're worship, but I suspect if you're an apostle or a disciple, you're just meditating on what did Jesus possibly mean when he told us to be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, um, Samaria, and the very ends of the earth. Um, John Piper, um, a pastor up in uh, Minnesota, has once said, you know, missions exist because worship does not. And the reason that we engage in mission is to invite the rest of the world to experience what you experience every Sunday here during uh, your worship time, right? A renewed connection with God, confidence that your sins have been forgiven, that you've been reconciled to him, and then an invitation to participate in the ministry that God offers us. To be his hand and arm in the world to declare good news to those who need it. That he's forgiven you and he desires to restore creation to the way that he intended it to be. And I think that openness to the Holy Spirit, that um, propulsive force of the Holy Spirit pushing you out in a mission emerges, begins when we gather in worship and prayer. Not in worship and prayer that distances us from the realities of the world, but one that fully immerses us us in the reality of the world around us. 
I often think of um, Nehemiah 1. I was just preaching on that last week at Binghamton University, right? Nehemiah is sitting up at the citadel at Susa. It's after, um, it's during the exile. The people of God are in disarray. Jerusalem has been destroyed. Um, You have the stories of Daniel and Esther. And Nehemiah is sitting at the citadel, and people come back from Jerusalem. He says, what's our homeland like? What's the status of our city? And they say, oh, it's terrible. Uh, Our city is so decrepit, so destroyed, um, so terribly mown over by all the armies that have come. Um, There are no walls. And if if you're a city without walls, you're... um, I don't know what the equivalent would be today. It'd be like um, having, being in a city without a shopping mall. I mean, right, you, you aren't even worth having a Walmart in your town if you don't have walls. You're un- indefensible. You are prayed the closest country around you. You have no meaning or stature at all. And the temple is, uh, is terrible looking. And Nehemiah goes and he weeps and he fasts and prays for 40 days because he sees the reality of how terrible things are. He turns to God in prayer and he says, Lord, you have to do something. Forgive us our sins. And he says, give me favor in the eyes of this man. And you're wondering, who is this man? And he goes, oh, um, I happen to be the cupbearer to the king. The king's most trusted advisor, the one the king trusts his life to. The one who in other um, reigns and rules often functions as the facto um, prime minister or president. Because if the king's going to trust you with his life, he's going to trust you with a lot of political power too. And Nehemiah sees the reality of the world. He prays and fasts. And then the Lord propels him out. He goes, okay, give me favor in the eyes of this man. And he goes to the king. He says, hey, um, help me fix the city of the Lord. And the king actually answers him. I think that's going to be what happens for those of you who are wise enough to go to the prayer retreat. Dick mentioned in the announcements. Right? If you immerse yourself in the Lord's prayer, you get to that line, may your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And the moment you pray that prayer, um, I remember one uh, speaker I heard at Urbana, uh, it's probably 87, said that's the most radical prayer in the world. Consider what it's committing yourself to. Do you know the world well enough to know where the kingdom of God has not arrived and is not manifest in its fullness? And when you say, may your kingdom come and your will be done, what does that commit us to do in our family relationships in terms of reconciling with those that we have not yet reconciled with, of extending grace to those who wound us time after time, of creating places of hospitality? What does it commit us to in our communities when you say, Lord, may your kingdom come and your will be done here in northern Westchester? Where do you see the kingdom not yet manifesting? How about in your jobs and workplaces? Right? Where do our relationships with our coworkers, the products that we produce, the things that we consume, need to change so that the kingdom comes and his will is being done? When you pray that prayer, you're actually having to invite yourself to say, Lord, may your Holy Spirit come and may it be part of that solution. <clears throat> because it always strikes me, um, at least it strikes me out of Luke 11 when Jesus says, look, the harvest fields are white. Just ask the Lord for more people to come and be harvesters. So they go to him, Lord, there's so much opportunity. The need so great. Send someone. The next words of Jesus are, so go. Answer the prayer you've just prayed. Right? And I think that's what's happening for the disciples. They're marinating over the reality of the brokenness of the world. They're engaged in opening themselves for God. And then the Lord sends them. And so the Holy Spirit descends in these kind of 
crazy tongues of fire, right? And there's this loud wind that shakes the room. And if you're an Old Testament person, you'd think, you know, every time the Lord manifested throughout um, the Exodus, right? There was always thunder or large winds or earthquake. The Lord's in that place, and the Holy Spirit descends. The Holy Spirit comes when the people gather in worship and prayer, not just to exalt Jesus, but to ask, what does he want us to do in this world? And then how is the Holy Spirit's power to play, sorry, displayed? It's when they're actually engaged in witness. Look at verses 4 through 11 again. Right? All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now, they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard that sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. And utterly amazed, they asked, you know, aren't these kind of the northern backwoods people? What are they doing speaking in my own heart language? And from there is gathered this entire collection of people from throughout um, the Roman Empire. Part of what we witness to, I think, when we gather together and are empowered by the Holy Spirit is the recreating power of God. Now, people are gathered from throughout the Roman Empire in Jerusalem because it's Pentecost. It's a feast day, and people are coming back to make their offerings. And look at the lands that are described in verses 9 and following. So they have Parthians and Medes and Elamites. So that would have been, Parthia would have been around modern-day Iran, um, and Medes and Elamites are kind of a little north uh, of that. Residents of Mesopotamia, which would be modern-day Iraq. Judea, you know about. Cappadocia was kind of southern, southeastern Turkey. Pontus and Asia would have been most of the rest of the country of Turkey. Um, Phrygia and Pamphylia kind of fill out that area. Egypt, you know where Egypt is, and parts of Libya near Cyrene, so all of the southern Mediterranean coast. Visitors from Rome and Italy, both Jews and converts to Judaism. Cretans, the islands right in the uh, middle of the Mediterranean, and Arabs. <clears throat> it's basically the known world to those who live in the Mediterranean basin. Um, and what they're basically saying, everybody that we can imagine is gathered in Jerusalem. And amazingly, as the disciples speak in these crazy tongues, what people are hearing is, how is it that we're hearing them declare the wonders of God in our own heart language, in our own native tongue? I don't know how many of you are um, naturally bilingual or speak a language, uh, other, uh, something other than English was your first language. Um, I, I expect Jillian Peter would say English has, is none of your first languages. You speak American, but we'll let that pass. Um, if you've ever traveled overseas in a country that uh, does not use English regularly, and you're working to piece your way through, do you remember the first time you met a guide or a hotel um, person or a restaurant clerk who actually spoke enough English that you could make your needs and wants known? Do you remember what a sense of relief you had? The sense of, oh, I'm finally safe, right? Um, I remember at uh, an Urbana Student Missions Conference uh, back in 2003, I was wandering um, the exhibit area because I, I was a little bored and had a little free time, and I met this woman um, who looked a little distraught. And since she knew that I was the MC of the conference, uh, she assumed I knew everything about the conference. So she said, hey, can you help me find um, an, a mission agency that works in Ireland? And I couldn't, actually, but I knew who to bring her to. Uh, but as I heard her accent, I realized she must have been from Ireland. So I just randomly, randomly tossed out a simple welcome in Irish, because I used to work in a law firm. We had an Irish secretary. And I, so anyways, I just said, oh, conus, uh, uh, which is uh, 
God bless you. And it's the, a common greeting in Gaelic. And she looked at me, and she, her, she was very Irish, right? Red hair, milk, just like red, rushed to her face. Tears poured out of her eyes, and she just started sobbing. And I just thought, did I pronounce it that badly? I mean, I was, was it that offensive? And she just said, um, I've been an international student in America for uh, three and a half years. I have not been able to go home. And she said, just to hear somebody say something to me in Gaelic. She said, it just, she just started all, like literally crying because she was so homesick. And that little bit of phrase said, you're known here. And I handed her to I'm like, oh, you know, I used the two other phrases I knew. How are you? She asked me how are you. I could just say, oh, I'm great. And I said, I, I've run out of things to say. Um, but I, we trotted over, I introduced her to a mission agency, but there's something about hearing truth and welcome in your own heart language that's profound. Isn't it interesting that when the Holy Spirit comes to propel the people of God out of their worship place into the community, they're given the opportunity to speak in the heart language of the people who are there. They weren't created such a magnetic, powerful worship presence. People like, I need to worship with those people, right? I'm hearing them sing through the windows. Instead, the Spirit of God propels them out into Jerusalem where they meet the nations, and then God says, I want you to learn their language. They don't need to learn your worship language, your worship style, your community or culture. I want you to be able to speak to them. These are Galileans. They weren't necessarily super well-educated. There's no reason... No possible reason they could have possibly known Elamite or Median or any of the languages of these people. But when God says, I want you to go to be my missionaries, he actually gives us the ability to communicate in ways that people can understand. Right? It's what Jesus did in the incarnation. After centuries of speaking from on high, the Lord enters our world, takes on human flesh, lives a human life, eats human stuff, and speaks in a particular language, probably Aramaic, to a group of people who needed to understand it that way. God actually validates these cultures by celebrating the linguistic diversity of the people who are gathered there. And I think when he does it, he begins to create a truly multi-ethnic, multicultural church. He's basically saying it's not enough to be Jewish anymore. You're going to be a church that one day will gather people from every tribe, nation, language, and tongue before my throne. And what strikes me about that picture from Revelation 7 is that before the throne of God, they're still distinct and different. They don't blend together in one kind of taupe-colored mass, all singing Esperanto together in kind of some, you know, um, kind of moderately middle-class Hillsong integrity music sort of way. Instead, it's the diversity and difference of the group that actually gives God the glory because he's not some small tribal deity. He's the God of every culture, of every people, and he empowers them to do that. So I wonder um, what it would look like if the Holy Spirit rushed through um, Community Bible Church, how um, our very multi-ethnic nature here would begin to reflect signs of the new creation where God is bringing all people back together, not in a kind of an assimilated, we all act alike, talk alike, and sing alike sort of way, but if people were actually free to be fully themselves in this community so that actually we could celebrate our differences rather than just our similarities. Right? But too often when the church gathers and we talk about ethnicity or race, we want to talk about what we have in common, Jesus, and that's great. But how much more powerful it is, we are so incredibly different, the only possible thing that could bring us together is Jesus Christ. And we're free to be different 
and free to express ourselves fully as men, women, people gathered from many different nations um, because Jesus Christ is enough to keep us together. What kind of witness would that be? If you do that, I think you'd have to tackle some challenging issues. Um, You know, for example, um, leadership criteria, what you look for in leadership beyond general godliness is pretty culturally defined. In InterVarsity, when we look for student leaders, we're often looking for um, uh, students who initiate, who volunteer, who make themselves known. And I pointed out in those often white contexts, that's a very Western white male way of looking at leadership. Um, In Asian cultures, there's a saying shared by most of our cultures, the nail that sticks up gets pounded back down. Because we have a high value for conformity. Uh, You know, there's a billion people in a very small amount of land. You just, there's not a lot of room for, I gotta be me, right? So, uh, and in Asian cultures, you're taught, um, if if you're actually trained, the people who volunteer for leadership are the probably ones least equipped to take it. They're probably proud too self-assertive, you should be invited to be a leader. Well, you can imagine when staff are looking for uh, strong leaders and they're waiting for the people to volunteer to be great leaders, there's an entire group of people, at least the Asian Americans of that crowd, who may not even get noticed. Um, Women, I think that's true for uh, a lot of the women too, right? Often we're socialized here in the United States um, not to be like, yes, choose me, pick me, right? Uh, How does leadership definitions need to change if we're a recreated community? that God is using to send forth. What would, how do you do conflict well as a church? <clears throat> uh, white and Asian cultures tend to be somewhat conflict avoidant. We like politeness, niceness, and gentleness. Um, when I engage with my friends from the African American or Latino cultures, uh, for them, conflict is something to be utilized and not avoided. And they show you they're engaged and fully present by being more emphatic, louder, and they lean in. Because they want you to know they care, which causes people like me to lean back. And then so they lean in more, trying to show they care, and I keep leaning further and further back. How are we going to do that together, right? As the Holy Spirit begins to work among us to say, this is about Jesus, and we can celebrate our differences, but we have to negotiate some of those changes. Um, Think about uh, a very orderly white Anglican or Presbyterian service, and if you've ever been to a black or Latino church, which may go an hour or three Right, where the pastor worship leader isn't like Rachel very gently welcoming us into worship, but is exhorting you, stand up, sing now, and you're just like, stop yelling at me. <laughs> but when we're a new creation, when we're bringing together this kind of diversity, I think the world takes notice. Because so much of the rest of the United States wants to assimilate, wants everybody just to get along, and what the church says, oh, that's such a shallow idea of what we could be as a community. And those of you who are married have a sense of that, right? Um, the truth, the way you know you're truly secure in your marriage is you are free to be who God has called you to be and who you actually are before your spouse in a way that you can be with no other person in the world. Because when there's that kind of love and that kind of commitment, there's real joy and freedom. And so the church spreads out in mission. They begin to talk to these people who are different um, and I think they're witnessing not just to the recreating power of God, but God's bringing harmony and unity back to his diverse creation as he intended in Genesis 1 and 2. But they're also proclaiming the reconciling power of God in mission as well. And you see that, I think, in verses 16, uh, sorry, 11 and following, right? Um, these people um, are saying, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own language. And obviously, I think they're referring back to the, uh, the resurrection of Jesus, right? 
that was just barely 50 days ago. The that's all the disciples are going to be thinking about at that point. And amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? And uh, our scripture reader, I think, had the tone perfectly right. Some people <laughs> made fun of them and said, they've had way too much wine for such an early time in the morning. Which doesn't explain how they could so lucidly explain the wonders of God in somebody else's language. Then Peter stood up with the eleven and raised his voice and addressed the cloud, crowd, fellow, fellow Jews and all who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I have to say. These people are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. And he's basically saying, we haven't had time to get drunk yet. Right? This is, this is way early. No, what's happening now is what was promised to the prophet Joel. When the Holy God had said to Joel, the Holy Spirit's going to come on you as a community, and we are going to prophesy all of us. Men and women, young and old, we are going to declare the wonders, the power, and the person of God together. And it's going to be so different from the time that the priest had to do it all or a single prophet came. The entire people of God will be mobilized for the mission of God to declare his glory among the nations. Brothers and sisters, the time is now, right? Their multi-ethnic reality, I think, gives them authority and authenticity as they witness to the work of God. Because they can go, look, this isn't some crazy Messiah who just came to life. This is the Lord of the universe, the hope of the world, the Lord of the nations. That's why all of us are hearing this in our own heart language. And they're proclaiming the wonders of God, I think, obviously, preeminently in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And that's what the rest of Peter's sermon is really about putting um, the Old Testament prophecies in the context of who Jesus is, I suspect that Emmaus Road walk that the early disciples had with Jesus is now just spinning out of control in their heads, and they're seeing the connections and declaring it. And that's how I think we need to do mission together, right? We, hear the good, we help people hear the good news in their native language and in their own tongues, and we contextualize it so it resonates with them. That's the best part of the mission groups that you all are trying to lead, is that at their best, they're looking for what other people outside of the church are interested in, and a place of interest that we share, and then we create a community experience for us to mutually share the things that we love. And then as people engage with this community and see the way the Holy Spirit has brought this group of people together, it becomes natural to talk about who Jesus is and what he's done. Um, it's really clear, I think, throughout Scripture, right, that spiritual gifts are always designed for the building up of the church and the empowerment in mission. And one of the ways that you know that you're engaged in, that the Holy Spirit is moving you, working in you, is not just that you worship all the time or that you pray all the time. It's that you're engaged in witness all the time as well. I think of two students at Lehman College. As you all know, um, I work with InterVarsity Christian Fellowship, a ministry among college and university students. And part of what we love doing is helping students grasp this. So um, at Lehman College in the Bronx, we're just starting a small chapter there. There's about 10 students. And um, one of the students, uh, a woman named Dorothy, um, kept watching her staff worker share her faith. And she said, I'd love to try to do that too. But I'm really scared. I'm scared of that people reject me. They're going to make fun of me. I'm scared I'm going to do it wrong. But she just kept watching and kept getting more and more engaged. And so... Um, her staff worker talked to her at one of the core meetings where, and said, you know, you could do this. So let's pray and seek God together. This is the burden he's given you. Let's seek the Holy Spirit's empowerment and then go do something. So she prayed. She went um, that next week. She shared her faith with one person. And it was such a bummer because that person was already a Christian. 
So she was so disappointed. She said, I am not going to let this stop me. By the end of the week, she had led two other people to Christ, a university uh, administrator as well as a fellow student. Another student, um, seeing this happen, said, I want that too. And prayed that God would empower her through the Holy Spirit to go ahead and do witness. So she began to witness to people. She actually talked to 10 people before the week was over. And she came back to the staff where she said, you know, um, one person came to faith, but if the three of us just spoke to 10 people every day, like I just did, which was fantastic, we could speak to 1,000 people before this month is over if we really put our minds to it. And if the group of 10 of us did that, we could have the entire school covered every month. We'd just go back over and over and over. And I was like, yeah, you could put little stickers, I've been witness to today, thank you. And just to give people a pass. I'm convinced part of the question is, do you want to know the Holy Spirit's power? Then seek the Lord in worship and prayer, not just to glorify him, but to ask, given the actual reality of the world around us and the command that you have for us to be your witnesses, to make disciples of all the nations, how are we going to do that? And as you seek him and glorify him, the Holy Spirit will come. It's going to propel you into a new experience of community as well as a new experience of witness together. And the very fact that, I mean, you all have an amazing community here. It, you have a delightful group of people who gather every week. I love coming to visit you. Um, you have what so many people are hungry for. And the genuine love and service that you demonstrate to another will give authenticity to the witness that you have. And then Jesus Christ will be glorified. It was a crazy thing for Jesus to invite this group of 120 people to try to change the 600,000 people at Jerusalem when they were there. They were small. They were despised. People looked at them askance. It was a really Jewish religious population, right? I mean, they were not very open to the idea that this was going to be the Messiah who died so terribly. What struck me as I was thinking and praying about that is here in Westchester County, they're just under a million people. Now, you all work in northern Westchester County, so I'll give you that the majority of them live at the south end of the county. But even if we give you the 300,000 or so people who live in your immediate surroundings, you're a church not that dissimilar from that 120 group of people gathered in the upper room at Jerusalem who, as they prayed and sought the presence of the Holy Spirit and were propelled out in mission, so disrupted Jerusalem that over the course of the next few months, thousands of people started coming to faith. The entire economic system of Jerusalem became disrupted so deeply and so thoroughly that the religious leaders actually had to unleash persecution to try to bring things under control. God did it then. Could that very same God who gives us the very same command not want to do the same thing here as well? You may think, man, we're a small group compared to the vastness of northern Westchester County. So did the early disciples. You may think, wow, Westchester County is just not very open to Christianity. There are a lot of Jewish people. There's a large Mormon church nearby. There are a lot of other religions, a lot of atheists. How could they possibly be open to the spirit? Don't you think the early disciples asked the very same question? We're in a pretty religiously unwelcoming environment here for the message of Jesus. They just crucified him 40 days ago. Does not the same Holy Spirit desire to do the very same kind of thing in our lives as he was doing back then? Brothers and sisters, the Holy Spirit is the same yesterday, <clears throat> today, and forever. Because he's part of the triune God who's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And he calls you to almost the exact same population base that he called the early disciples to 
with almost the exact number of people that he called the, that he used to propel the early disciples into mission. What an amazing privilege, an amazing invitation God has, seems to be offering you. I'd suggest every Sunday part of what God is saying to you is, take my hand, let's do this together. I will give you my presence, you give me your availability, and we can turn northern Westchester upside down in the same way the early apostles turned Jerusalem upside down, and perhaps in the same time frame. Pray, please be to God. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, I'm grateful um, because when I think of communities that are open to the movement of your spirit, I think of this church. Um, I think of the ways they uh, choose to love one another and serve one another. Um, I think of the ways that over the years I've seen them um, reorient themselves around your mission and look increasingly outside the walls of this church to ask, where, God, are you at work and how could we come alongside you? And then to take steps of faith to do it. Lord, this church exists because you called it into being. This church seems to be very open to the ways that your spirit wants to continue to orient them around your mission. So, Lord, do what you intend to do. And, Lord, may northern Westchester be a place where the gospel of Jesus Christ is declared in word and deed and power so that the dead really come to life. Those in darkness have light. Those who are blind have sight. And those who need new life find it. You are the Lord, and we desire that Jesus Christ be worshipped here to your glory. Amen.